Thank you, John. And you are right that uh, we have known each other for a long time. I've been in your midst many a times. I have friends out at Waterford and other places. And I just want to thank the Lord for the opportunity to be with you again this weekend. Now, we're coming to the end of our series on uh, the seven I am's of Jesus and the claims that he makes about himself and who he is. And this one I am that we're looking at is in John chapter 15. But before we read the text, I'm going to read the first um, 11 verses and then jump to verse 16. Before we do that, I want to tell you a story. And I don't know that it's a true story, but it makes a point, and so follow with me. Of a school um, here in the U.S. that uh, took great pride in the fact that they conducted their fire drills as was required of them ever so often so that they could uh, make sure that the kids were ready. You know, if there ever was a fire, they'll get out in time and etc. And uh, this one week, they had conducted a fire drill at the beginning of the week. And then towards the end of the week, um, the, 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 the bell rang again. And the students, you know, were quite happy because it meant, ha, ah, you know, we don't have to finish this lesson. It's going to take at least, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes for us to get out and to go and congregate at the fire point and then get back in class. And so we're done with this lesson. The teachers, meanwhile, were grumbling about the fact that, you know, there's too many fire drills and, you know, I can't conclude my lesson. I'm behind in my curriculum and all those sorts of things. And so everybody sort of dragged themselves out of the building. But when they got outside, they were surprised to look back at the school and to see smoke bellowing out of the far end of the school. The school was actually on fire, even though they had not taken the bell seriously. And as they watched, the fire completely consumed the building. And so they did a quick count to see whether everybody got out. And to their shock, they discovered that several of the children must have been overwhelmed by the smoke inside the building. They were on the far end of the, you know, of the building, the classes at the far end, and they never got out, and several teachers were missing. Now, as you can imagine, when the school board you know, got together, they asked how and why this could happen. And it turned out that the school was an old building. It didn't have any you know, water fire regulators, and therefore, the sprinklers never came on. They weren't there. They didn't have any. And so the school board made a decision that it was going to put in the state of the, you know, what is it, the art of the state, state of the art, state of the art, fire sprinklers, so that this would never happen again. And sure enough, when the building, the new building was put up, they had the best fire sprinklers in the whole school district, just completely modern. And everybody, you know, when it was commissioned, everybody was very proud of this. They knew that they could not have this sort of calamity again. Well, the janitorial staff, of course, did everything they could to look after the school and the new building and those sorts of things. But it so turned out one day that when one of the janitors went into the basement, to his horror, he discovered that even though the school had the state-of-the-art fire sprinklers, somebody had forgotten to connect the system to the water means. And if there had been a fire, the students would have been exposed and in danger. Somebody had forgotten to connect the state-of-the-art sprinkler system to the water means. 
That's what Jesus is saying in the text we're about to read. And he begins by saying in verse 1 of John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that bears fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and abide in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then he concludes in verse 16 and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. As with all the other I am's that we've been looking at over the last six weeks, this too is a very rich passage. And the analogy he uses here of a gardener and a vine and branches and fruit is rich. There is so much you could draw from this text, and I don't think we can do it justice in the time that we have. But I, I want us to focus on what the center piece or what the key message in my thinking is about um, this analogy he uses. But before we begin um, with that, let me, let me make a comment on how the passage is structured. Jesus begins by bracketing the front end of the passage and then the back end by repeating the very same thought. And so at the front end, he says what he concludes with at the back end, as though these were brackets that he's setting in place. The front end bracket is verse 1 to 3 where he says that I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Here's what he's just said in plain language. There are three players in this scenario. And the first of those is a gardener himself who owns the vineyard, because we're talking about vines, who owns a vine plant, who owns a fruit that is born on the branches of the vine plant. There is a gardener who tends to his trees and to his vines to ensure that he gets a maximum return. Then there is a vine, and Jesus is the vine. 
has its roots in the ground, draws up all the nourishment and the good stuff and, you know, draws it up through the trunk or the vine itself and out into the branches, pushes it out into the branches so that the leaves may be plush. They may be able to do what they do photosynthesis, to produce food and to bear fruit. And then there is you and I who are the branches who must cling to the vine that nourishes us and sustains us so that we can do what we are made to do, which is to bear fruit. Now, the gardener wants fruit. And the reason that he tends this vine is so that he can get fruit. And if the branches do not bear fruit, then the gardener must cut off those branches and throw them away, throw them into the fire. Because as branches, they are sucking up the nourishment, they are consuming the resources, but they give no return and they bear no fruit. And therefore, the whole plant suffers as a result. But when he cuts off those fruitless branches, then the food that would have gone to those branches can now be redistributed into the other branches so that there is even more fruit on those branches than there would have been otherwise. You are the branches. And the real question that those first three verses are asking is, are you bearing fruit? And then in verse 16, just to make the point again, Jesus brackets the end of everything that he said by repeating this thought again. And he says in verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you so that you can go and bear fruit, much fruit that will last. There is a reason why God, why Jesus has called you and chosen you and given you his name and called you his son. It is so that you bear fruit. And the question again is, bracketed at the beginning of this passage and at the end of our reading, are you bearing fruit? So there you have it. Jesus begins by saying, God wants fruits, and he's looking for fruit, and he wants much fruit that will last. And he's counting to see a fruitful branch, because that's what he wants from you and I. Maybe just to help us not get lost in the length of the passage, because we read from verse 1 through to verse 11, in verse 8 itself, Jesus repeats the same thing. And this is what it says. It is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In other words, you really aren't my disciples if you're not bearing fruit. Not only are you to bear fruit, but it is how you show that you are my disciple. And so we will have to ask a question then. Are we bearing fruit? as Jesus' disciples. Because many will call on the name of the Lord. Many will call themselves Christians. Many will talk about the wonderful relationship they have. Many will talk about the wonderful blessings God has brought their way. Many will talk about the wonderful things that God is doing and revealing to them. But the key question is this, where is the fruit? 
Because that's who disciples are. So what is this fruit, we may ask? Okay, I'm supposed to bear fruit, but exactly what is this fruit that I am supposed to bear? Well, in the New Testament, there are three clear references where um, the Bible talks about fruit. And I, I want to suggest that this is what the Lord is talking about. And the first and most obvious of those passages is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, where the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit of God dwells within you, the fruit that is evident that everyone can see is love, a spirit of love, a spirit of joy, a spirit of peace, a sense or a spirit of forbearance, a spirit of kindness, a spirit of goodness, a spirit of faithfulness, a spirit of gentleness, and a spirit of self-control. Fruit that everybody can see. And you want to know whether the spirit of God is dwelling within you? These things should be obvious. This is the character of a child of God. These nine qualities that Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 speaks of is the character of a child of God. Now granted, you know, um, if you come from Africa, if you come from my country of Kenya, you know, we, we don't struggle with some of these things. You know, when it comes to joy, I think we're, we're a very noisy, you know, uh, sanguine, joyous people, but we sure struggle with faithfulness. When it comes to being there on time, as promised, as expected, we talk about African time. And African time is anything sort of, you know, laid back up to an hour late, it's not too late, it's okay. Now, what we do at the church, because it happens even with the Sunday services, you begin the service and there's hardly anybody in the church. But no, no problem, this is Africa, we're on African time, so you know, we're supposed to begin at 11 o'clock, everybody sort of flocks in by about 11.30, so we just run the service a half hour late, and we still get our two hours of service, even though we don't end on the time that we're supposed to end. Very African, okay? But these qualities, our challenge is to be faithful. These nine qualities are supposed to be the qualities of a child of God. This is fruit. There's a second passage. In, in uh, John chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking says, Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest. But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. And the sense of the passage is this, that there is a fruit, there is a crop, there is a harvest that is the harvest for eternal life. The souls, the people, the men and women who are coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is fruit for the kingdom. The third one is good deeds and acts of justice that the Bible calls fruit. Titus chapter 3 and verse 14. Our people should also learn how to set an example by doing good deeds when urgent needs arise so that they can live fruitful lives. Our good deeds, our acts of compassion, our acts of justice, this is fruit that the Lord wants to see in our lives. These three 
are the things that the Bible identifies as fruit in a Christian's life. And so the question again is, are you bearing fruit? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody and led them to faith? When was the last time that you were involved in doing good deeds with no returns to yourself, but doing them in the name of the Lord, being kind to someone else, caring for someone in need, going out of your way, even paying a price to do something that is kind. This is fruit. And then, of course, as we said at the very beginning, the fruit of character. Are you bearing fruit? Because God wants to see fruit in your life because it brings glory to him, he says in verse 8, and because this is why Jesus chose you. I'm not much of a gardener myself, I admit. The property I live on back home in Kenya is about an acre uh, big, and the soil is a particular sort of soil. We call it black cotton soil. Okay, it's a black uh, clay soil, and it's a sort of soil when it is dry, it hardens and becomes like a rock and cracks. You know, you can see cracks in the ground that go six inches down. And if there are any roots there, it, it grips the roots because it's hardening as it, as it dries up. And then as it cracks, it just tears the roots. So very little grows well on it. And uh, when it rains, the, the rainwater, you know, makes the clay nature of the soil come out. And so the water can't penetrate and go into the soil. It sits on the surface and it's gooey and it's black and it's a real mess and you can't get it off your shoes, but it doesn't drink up the water. It's hard to grow anything there. But when I, when I moved on to this property, I planted an avocado tree and I planted a mango tree and I planted an orange tree and I planted a lemon tree and a couple of other fruit trees. And my expectation was that somehow I would someday, you know, get a harvest from these. And mango trees will come into season, you know, twice a year if you're lucky. Um, avocados are there the whole year and etc. Incidentally, here you buy them for quite a price. They're, they're a nuisance. They're like a weed at home. There are so many and, you know, so many drop off the tree that you don't know what to do with them. You don't park your car under an avocado tree because they keep dropping on the car and making dents on the car. And uh, so I planted and I wanted to get these fruit, but I kid you not, that was 14 years ago. This year, for the first time ever, I saw some little small mangoes growing on my mango tree. After 14 years, I may as well cut down my fruit trees and give up on that because it's not happening. They're not productive at all. Now, having said that, those are the two brackets. Now let's look at the text in the middle, the body of the, of the passage that we're looking at, going from verse 4 through to verse 11. Jesus is teaching his disciples, but this is the heart of the message. I say that this was a passage that really contains what the essential truth is here. And why do I say that it's in this passage? It's for this reason. In the... Today, when we want to highlight and to stress something in a text, I'm writing a letter, an email to somebody, and I want to stress something and say, this is important, you must not miss this. What do I do? I tend to underline 
what I'm trying to say, the important part. I capitalize the letters, I use italics, I color with a highlighter, or I write the words in bold red so that they can't miss them, or I have you know, a call-out box so that they can see what needs to be said. Well, in Bible days, they didn't have any of that. In fact, you may not know it, but the Greek New Testament um, was written in capital letters. They did not start using small case letters until about three centuries later. And so everything was in caps. They didn't even have punctuation marks. So everything runs into everything. And it's like one long line with, you know, you have to, to know the words to know where they split. They didn't have punctuation marks. They just wrote it out. And this is, this, is, this is what we have in this section over here. But they still had a way of stressing what needed to be stressed. Even though they didn't have punctuation marks and, you know, exclamation marks and commas and, you know, highlight. They didn't have any of that, but they could still stress. And the way they would stress is that if you wanted to show that something was important, you gave it more space in your letter. Number two is you used what was called a climatic numerical proverbial, you know, um, saying. So take, for example, give you an example, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. The author of Proverbs says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are, the, are an abomination to him. Did you hear that? These six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. That's an attempt to tell you, I'm about to tell you something important. And the most important thing is number seven. Not just the first six. And so he says, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in, run, in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and then number seven. This is what I want to stress. And one who sows discord among brethren. These six are bad enough, but this is the worst. That's stressing it. Number three, use alliterations. Now, you can't see this in the Bibles that we have because they were written in Hebrew and Greek. But what would happen is in an alliteration, you tend to use the same letters over again to say, you know, to, to, to make somebody notice something. So you've heard this saying, she sells seashells on the seashore, okay? That I'm using the S at the beginning of each letter. They do that in the Greek and the Hebrew, but when you translate it into English, it doesn't come through. So you often miss many of those alliterations that they have. Another one was what was called acoustic, uh, sorry, acrostic uh, poems. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. The verses are divided into stanzas of 22 verses each. And every set of 22 begins with the same letter of the alphabet. So the author of the psalm begins with A, the equivalent in the Hebrew, B, C, 22 verses on D, 22 verses on E, 22 verses on F, until he has worked his way through the whole alphabet. And it's his way of linguistically stressing something. But then, number five, when they wanted to show stress, they would repeat what was being said so that it drums itself into your head. Genesis chapter five, 
we're told about death coming into the world. Abraham lived 967 years and then he died. And his son lived 764 years and then he died. And that phrase, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, is a Bible telling you that the death that God had talked about if sin is, you know, if man participates in sin, in chapter five has finally come. And in this passage, in John chapter 15, Listen to this, verse 4, abide in me. Verse 4 again, I will abide in you. Verse 4 again, it must abide in the vine. Verse 4 again, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, if a man abides in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me. Number, verse 7, if my words abide in you. 11 times Jesus talks about abiding. And it's almost as though he's saying, do you get it, guys? I'm repeating it over and over and over again. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. If you don't abide in me, if you don't abide in me. That's what's central to this passage. The key, me the key message is I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me 11 times and I think verse 5 is the pinnacle verse because in it he says I am the vine you are the branches if a man abides in me and I in him he will bear much fruit and apart from me you can do nothing let me say that a little different you are the mobile phone and I am the battery. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Or maybe this way. You are the car engine, I am the fuel, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Or maybe this way. You are the lamp, I am the electricity. And if you don't plug yourself into the power socket, you can do nothing. There is no good thing, there is no fruit that will come in your life if you do not abide in Christ. I've been a pastor now for 30 years. And as I look back on my 30 years of leadership, I keep thinking to myself, if I could do it all over again, there is one key piece that I would change about the way I've led. You see, somewhere early in my pastorate years, I discovered leadership management books. And I began to read the likes of Steve Covey, and I began to read the likes of Jim Collins and other, you know, big gurus like uh, Malcolm Gladwell and all these other sort of international business leaders who have written the definitive books on leadership. And I got so committed to this that I've read about every book that came out somewhere between the early 90s through to the early, you know, 2015 or so. Almost every book, I've read it. And for a long time, I was looking for principles to help me lead well, as though 
The principles of men in how to do leadership is what the church needs and what God needs to get this job done. And if I can only learn these principles, then I will be able to lead phenomenally. I can still remember the day, having read all these books and finally come to the conclusion, they are all repeating themselves. And some of these so-called great companies that they talk about have since collapsed. And for all the good principles that they gave, it didn't work. It finally dawned on me, you know, you seem to have taken yourself as a branch and you have cut yourself away from the vine and you've gone and grafted yourself onto the vine of leadership management gurus. And you're trying to suck, you know, nutrients from there so that you can bear good fruit for the kingdom. And verse 5 struck me. Jesus saying, unless a man abides in me, you can do nothing. Read all the principles you want. You know, have all the strategic planning you want. Have all the best plans of men that you want to have. But you will not be able to do anything in the kingdom of God until you learn to abide in Christ. That was phenomenal for me. And I've made it my discipline. Now, I still have, by God's grace, maybe another 15 years of, of leadership to give yet. I really want to learn what it means to abide in Christ as a leader. To learn everything about leadership from the Bible, as opposed to all these gurus who are there for 10 years and then it's gone. Some of the big companies that we talk about have since closed, have since fallen apart. They no longer are leaders in industry. The Bible's been there for 2,000 years and the church has been there for 2,000 years. It's lasted much longer than any of these organizations or companies. That's where I need to learn my lessons about leadership. So how do we abide in Christ? I want to give you a very simple way of understanding how to abide in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means this. In verse 1, sorry, in verse 3, Jesus says, um, you are already um, clean. You have already been pruned, he seems to say in verse 3, because of the words, the teaching I have given you. And then he says again in verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will abide in me. In other words, do the things I have told you to do and you will abide in me. What does it mean to abide in Christ? I really think that what Jesus is saying to us is to abide in him means that we know his word, we learn his word, and we live his word. So let me give you a very simple way to remember what abiding is. I want, I want to give you what is called the hand illustration, okay? It's just a hand. They're going to put a projection up on the screen for all of us so that you can see this. It's a hand. And it's a five fingers or, you know, the five appendages of a hand. And let's begin with the first one. The first one is a little pixie finger, okay? Now, if I want to hold a pen with uh, my little finger, okay, I can do that just with one finger. But it's not a very strong grip. My little finger is not very strong, okay? And so I can't hold something, grip something well with my little finger. But that little finger is about hearing the word of God. When we hear the word of God, we begin to abide in Christ, as you're doing today. In, in, the, in, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, it says this. 
So then, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through preaching Christ. Hearing is an important vehicle for us to abide. And so, just even coming to church is the beginning of abiding because you're hearing the word, you're growing as a result. But the little finger has a grip that probably only makes up for about 10% of, you know, the capacity of the hand to grip something. So I need a second finger to hold it a little stronger. It's harder now to pull the pen from my hand, but it's still not a very strong grip because this ring finger adds maybe a capacity of another 20%. It's a little stronger than the pixie finger. If the pixie is 10, then maybe this is 20. So I've got a 30% grip. The second finger, the ring finger, is about reading the word of God. Revelations chapter 1 and verse 3. Happy is the one who reads the word of God, this book. And happy are those who listen to the word of this prophetic message and obey what is written in it. And so you want to hear and you want to read the Bible for yourself. But then there's a third finger, okay? Now when I grip the pen with three fingers, I have a much stronger grip on that pen. The third finger is about studying the word of God. Acts chapter 1, 17 and verse 11, talking about the Berean Christians. And it says the Bereans were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. They were very willing to receive the message, and every day after Paul had spoken, they carefully examined the scriptures for themselves to see whether the things that Paul was teaching them were true. They were called people of noble character because they would go and read it for themselves so that they could learn and they could grow. And they had a stronger grip on the word of God. The fourth finger is about memorizing the word of God. Now I've got a really strong grip on this pen. And the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart. I have memorized your word. I have stored it in my heart that I might not sin against you. Scripture memory and learning the word of God so that when the moment comes when you desperately need guidance from God, his word is already inside you. He can prompt you with what you have already stored away, what you have already memorized, and he can lead you. That's a really strong grip. But then I haven't used my opposing you know, finger or thumb now when I hold my pen like this, very few can actually pull it out of my hand because I have a really strong grip on it. And that fifth is meditating on the word of God. What does that mean? Well, meditating on the word of God is what Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 and 3 tells us. Blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This, my dear friends, is what it means to abide in Christ. That I am committed to these five things, listening to the word of God for myself, 
reading the word of God, studying the word of God like the Bereans, memorizing it so that I'm storing it away, and finally meditating on it. And you know that the, the great thing about this is this. If you do this and abide in Christ, you never need to worry about the fruit. You see, the branch that is on the vine and abides in the vine naturally gets nutrients from the vine itself. It never worries as to whether it will be fruitful or not. It will. It's in the nature of that which it's being fed. It's in the nature of the vine to feed it. It's in the nature, the DNA of the branch that it will bear fruit at the right time. Do you want to see fruit in your life? You can try and manufacture it. You can try and force it upon yourself. But I suggest to you that what you really need to do is to abide in Christ. And then you never need to worry about fruit. Your character will change, and that is fruit. You will be involved in doing good works, in being kind, in doing justice, and that is fruit. And you will naturally share with people about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. And so coming back again to what Jesus says, in this seventh I am, I am the vine, you are the branches. Will you abide in me that I may then bear fruit through you? Let's pray together. Fathers, we pray, I want to believe that there are those here who, in hearing these words, have heard you speak. That they've been struggling with what looks like fruitlessness in their life. And some of that may be because they're so given to rushing around and being busy that they have no time for your word. They hardly ever read the Bible. They hardly ever meditate on it and memorize it, and study it, and there's no fruit to show. And for them I pray, Father, that you'd give them the courage this day to start, even with that pixie finger of listening, and with that ring finger of reading. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for those who just know that they need to go to the next level with you, know that they need more of you, and they have wondered what they need to do for that to be true in their life. They look at others and admire what you're doing in them and through them, and they long to be used of you in that way. They want to bear fruit for you. Father, would you convict them even this day about abiding in you, that they would make a commitment to say, I will begin here. Thank you for the reading program that Summit has right now, reading through the life and the words of Jesus. Maybe they can begin there by just taking one of those little pamphlets and, and going home and beginning with day one and reading through the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And in this way, beginning to prepare that fruit will come. It's only a matter of time. Would you convict all of us, Lord, that our confidence would be in the gospel in terms of the lives that we live, that we're not chasing after technique and some great book we've heard about and some great author, but would recognize that ultimately the need is for us to come back to your word, to come back to your feet, and to abide in you, not in the greatest writer, 
the newest writer that there is in the bookstalls, but to come back to the Bible and to abide. We pray this, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.